0: Amen. Thank you, Justin. If anyone wants any pointers on how to memorize scripture, you... You, you see Justin after church, But um, and I know he, just his heart in that is not to perform, is not to uh, show himself, but just p- good prayer is saturated in God's word. And God's word speaking to us, us speaking his word back to him in prayer. Praise God for... Uh, that opportunity we have each and every week to come together as a church to pray. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world. It is the first direct command... That John gives in this letter. And it took halfway through chapter two to get there. Do not love the world. Surely up to this point, there's been plenty of implicit or implied commands that we have seen. John has been weaving in and out of these kind of logical arguments, if you will, with phrases like, if we say, or by this we know, and then making statements about who Jesus is, um, what his own personal experience with Jesus has been, and the assurance that Jesus always will be. But never a direct command to the church until now. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's a simple command, it's a true command. And yet, it is so often misunderstood how Christians and the church ought to relate to the world. And in general, I think there's two major ways to get it wrong. There's two major ways Christians get this wrong. First, to be so immersed with the world and everything in it that people can't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The second way to get it wrong is to be so secluded from the world and everything in it that people never have any meaningful contact with Christians. So, if we're not to immerse ourselves and look like the world, if we're not to seclude ourselves from the world, what do we do with this command? John's going to shed light on it for us this morning. So we're going to begin by reading our passage. It's another short passage. It's three verses this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." Pretty simple this morning, not easy, but pretty simple. John gives one command, and then three reasons for it. One command, and then three reasons for it. And the command, again, do not love the world. Think about some of the earliest things you learned as a child, and how many of them begin with, do not How about this one? Do not play with fire. It's a simple command, and it's simple, so simple, that a one-year-old could understand it. And it's at basically age one that all of us learned, and we all teach our one-year-old children, do not play with fire. Why? Because at one, you're walking, you're reaching, you're grabbing, you're curious, and the stove in the kitchen is within reach. Do not play with fire. You look them in the eye, right? With everything that is in me, I need you to know this little one-year-old. So our one-year-old, Lauren, um, is the cutest bundle of trouble I've ever known. And she does this thing where if you tell her not to touch something, including the stove, and, like, I will pin her hands to her side, my face is right up against hers, and, like, saying, do not touch that. She does this thing. She's got this side eye where where she'll just start looking at what she was told not to touch, and there's this smirk on her face at one that is both adorable and terrifying. And so I'm pinning her down, talking to her this, and then her twin brother will kind of walk around and be like, what's all going on? And now he's looking at the stove, and so I'm yelling at him, like, that goes for you too. Like, he didn't even do anything wrong, and he's getting yelled at, right? Like, this is how important this command is, and it's so simple. But why are Rochelle and I so passionate about a simple command? Am I trying to keep Lauren from the thrill and joy of life? Am I saying that all fire is bad and evil? No. But there's a certain interaction with fire that is destructive, especially for children. In the same way, John is passionate about a simple command to the church, do not love the world. Not because he's trying to limit their joy and keep them from having fun, not even because he's saying everything in the world is all bad all the time, but rather there's a certain interaction with the world that is destructive, especially for the children of God. So if we're going to understand this command, we need to be clear on what does John mean by world? Do not love the world. What's the world? Of all the New Testament authors, John uses this word the most. And he's taking after Jesus, who used it often in his teaching ministry. And Jesus' use of the word world was different based on its context. Specifically, I think there are three meanings of the word world in Scripture. First, and probably most famously, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here, world means sinful people that inhabit the world that God loves. He loves sinners. Amen? Not because of their sin, but because they are image bearers whom he has created and redeems. For God so loves the world. Second use of the word, and I think most generically, is John 1, verse 9, when he's speaking again of Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. There, world, simply means the created realm of earth. Jesus took on flesh and came to the world. But third, and the usage here in 1 John chapter 2... When John says, do not love the world, he doesn't mean the earth. He doesn't just mean the people of the earth, but rather the evil fallen systems that are under the authority of Satan that are opposed to God. Let me say it again. This usage of world is the evil fallen systems under the authority of Satan that are opposed to God. The same use of the word that Jesus had when he told his disciples the night before he was arrested the world will hate you because it hated me. And the world is an evil system that includes fallen thoughts, fallen values, fallen practices, fallen behaviors, fallen institutional systems that stand against God. In John chapter 14, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul calls Satan the God of this world, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Do not love the world or the things of this world. Do you know what the sermon's about yet? Do not love the world. Do not love that evil system which stands in opposition to Christ in every way and it's all around you. It's simple, isn't it? It's true, right? And it's hard. And so John's not just going to stop there. He's going to give us three reasons why this is so vital for the children of God. Reason number one, the world replaces God. The world and God is always an either-or proposition, never a both-and. You know what I mean by that? When he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Meaning, loving the world is not merely competing with God. It's not merely something you join with your love for God. It replaces it. It's an either-or You love the world, or you love God. There's no room in our hearts for two gods. There's just not. And every one of us, when push comes to shove, we will have one God above all the rest. Even if uh, for the things that we would not necessarily say and give the name God to, we all have one God that stands above the rest. More often than not, That one God turns out to be ourselves. The God of self. You cannot be your own God and then love the true God. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples this question. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. So what are we talking about here when we say do not love the world? Are we saying it's wrong for Christians to love anything in this world? Is it wrong to love your job? For those in here who have the blessing to say, I just love going to work, I love my job, I love what I'm called to do. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to, to love your, the house you live in? the place that you call home? Is it wrong to love your family? Of course not. That would be inconsistent with Scripture because the Bible talks about loving the dignity of work and loving family and loving neighbor. So here's what it's saying. Listen close. It's not wrong to love other things, but it is wrong to love anything more than God. When a love for something other than God surpasses our love for God, whatever that thing is becomes our God. No one can have two masters. The biblical word for those things that we might place before God are idols. Idols are not just something from a history past of little objects that people have in their homes or their temples to worship. Idols are anything... That we love more than God. Even good things, gifts to us, that we make ultimate things. That's what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. If you're looking for more pandemic reading, Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. Good things that God has given to you as a gift, made ultimate things, become an idol. So your spouse can be an idol. Your title at work can be an idol. Financial security can be an idol. things that make for great gifts to be enjoyed, but terrible gods to be worshiped. You know, Keller wrote that book in the book in the um, year 2009, "The Height of the Financial Collapse, And he's a pastor in Manhattan. And you know the way book publishing works. This was written probably 2006, 2007, but by the time it rolls out. It rolled out during a financial collapse, the biggest that this generation had seen up to that point. And Keller, in the book, tells the story of a new member of his church named Bill who worked in finance in the city, had just come to saving faith in Christ before the economic downturn. So Keller adds this passage in at the very end of the publishing process when Bill told him, if this had happened to me before I became a Christian, I would have hated myself. It would have driven me back to the bottle and maybe to suicide. Fourth-century theologian from North Africa, Augustine, was instrumental in displaying the fact that unbelievers don't primarily have a behavior problem, they have a love problem. We always think about being an unbelievers or being in the world as, as, as their behaviors, but behaviors are only expression of what we love most. So the problem is not first with what non-believers do, it's what they love. They love something more than God. Which is to say their minds are engrossed with things that in turn dampen or block their thoughts of God. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. The, The God of this world has blinded unbelievers to the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. Which is why if we merely try to change our behavior... Or we tell people, you just have to start doing better things, be a better person, don't mess up as much. That's terrible advice to give a non-believer. You're setting them up for failure. Because just doing good things has never saved anyone. Because the problem that we have at its root is at the human heart. So a word to any unbelievers here or listening on the live stream. I want to be very clear Conversion is not you just being a better person than you are right now. It's not you that just being better than the person that you compare yourself to. It's not just a change in behavior. It's a conversion of worship. It's a love transformation. And we cannot reorder our loves just by choice. We need a spiritual transplant where God opens our eyes to the destructiveness of sin and, the, and opens our eyes at the same time to the beauty of his grace. It's a beautifully agonizing moment when somebody comes to that realization that I am so broken I cannot save myself. And then Jesus Christ has been offered on my behalf. When we see this, we repent of our sin. We place our faith in Jesus Christ who died for our sin, who was raised from the dead to rule and reign over his people as Savior and Lord. This is conversion. It's a heart transplant. D.L. Moody was a well-known 20th century pastor in Chicago. One Sunday he was approached by a new Christian who said, quote, Mr. Moody, now that I am converted, do I have to give up the world Moody responded, No, sir, you don't have to give up the world. If you give a good ringing testimony for the Son of God, the world will give you up pretty quick. They won't want you. This is what conversion is. It's a reordering of our worship. It's a new first love in our hearts. And that's what leads to behavior modification, that that his grace sustains and and, and bolsters that. And it doesn't mean we stop loving everything in the world, but rather we start loving God above everything else in the world. Because the world seeks to replace our supreme love for God. That's reason number one. Reason number two why John says, do not love the world, is that the world fails to deliver. The world fails to deliver. Verse 16 again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So remember here, we've been talking a lot about unbelievers up to this point, but let's understand the context. John's writing to the church, John is speaking to Christians. He's telling those who are saved, do not love the world. Meaning, though, that even though Christ has freed us from the power of sin through repentance and faith, the reality is that the presence of sin and the temptations to sin still very much remain. And the enemy's goal is to rob us of our joy in Christ. It's to break fellowship with God. We talked about that earlier in this series. To break fellowship with others in the church. When you sin against people, you separate. You break fellowship with them. And ultimately, the enemy wants to dampen our witness in the world. The enemy loves nothing more than a Christian who loves the world. And the church that acts worldly, he loves it. Because your witness will be nothing. It will actually be a counter-witness. And to, for a Christian to love the things of the world is like a landscaper who works outside all day, gets home and takes a shower, and then is tempted to put the same clothes he just wore all day right back on. It doesn't make sense. That would be absurd. And yet that is the picture of a believer who indulges in the things of the world pastor and commentator John Stott said that the apostle John here does us a favor and that he provides us the three essential marks of a love for the world. So even if you're asking, what does it actually mean to love the world? John gives us three essential marks: the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So let's take them one at a time. First, the desires of the flesh. Based on translation, the word desires there could also be translated lusts. We associate in our day lusts with only sexual perversion. And, and certainly this Greek word includes that, but is not just limited to that. The desires of the flesh. It's any desire that is in and of itself sinful. So we talked about you could take good things and make them sinful by making them ultimate things, but you can also just have a desire for things that are in and of themselves sinful. And it's the product of a fallen nature. It's the desire for those desires that go against God's design. And it's a bent that we have to put our Uh, to indulge in and put our hope in sinful things that, that seem to satisfy in the moment, don't they? They seem to give you what you want in the moment, but they never deliver on their promise. The most comprehensive list in Scripture of the desires of the flesh is found in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 is most known for Paul providing the fruit of the Spirit in that list of nine things. But before he gives the fruit of the Spirit... He gives you a list of the work of the flesh. By the way, his list of the work of the flesh is twice as long as the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read it. Galatians 5, 19 and 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul is saying the same thing there that John is saying here. These things feel good in the moment, but they will always fail to deliver in the long run. Meaning they will not only fail to deliver, but they will dampen your love and desire for God. Because again, it's an either or. So as a kid, um, growing up and had three older brothers, we were always playing outside, always playing all different kinds of sports. I was constantly just getting beat up like all the time everywhere. Um, And I would remember vivid memories of coming inside after playing um, outdoors in the summer, so thirsty, they didn't have the Yeti cups back then, right? Where you just bring it around all with you. You had to come inside. If you want a cold drink, you come in. And I remember um, our, our family always um, loved soda, probably too much in our family. Um, but uh, I had the option as like a middle schooler, right? I could get water or an ice cold can of Sprite in the fridge. And I would always struggle to choose water over Sprite, even though I knew what would happen if I drank that Sprite but I would often go for the Sprite. You know why? It tasted so good. And I was so thirsty. And it would always be sweet on the lips, but heavy in the stomach. Ten minutes after drinking a can of Sprite, I would not only feel terrible, but I would be even more thirsty than I was ten minutes ago. It didn't deliver on quenching my thirst. And on top of that, now my stomach is so full and feels so terrible that I didn't even want to drink the water that would have satisfied. This is the double-edged consequences of the desire of the flesh. Not only do they fail to deliver on what we hope, but they dampen our appetite for that which we will find our only hope in God himself. Desires of the flesh. Second, the desires of the eyes. Again, could be translated the lust of the eyes. And the Bible tells us all throughout that the eyes are the highway of temptation. That we see, and because we see something, we begin to covet something. We see something, and we begin to lust after something. It's kind of the primary sense you have that triggers a Desire. Right before Jesus said you cannot serve two masters in Matthew 6, he said this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. That's why we're saying the Great and glorious hymn this morning. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. This is so relevant to the Christian life. Every single day we make a decision. Where are my eyes going to go? Church, watch your eyes. Watch your eyes. How often have you found when a moment of temptation catches you off guard? You didn't go into This moment, thinking you're going to be tempted to sin, but you see something, and it triggers something. Maybe you're flipping through channels, maybe you're scrolling through social media, and all of a sudden, almost off guard, you're reading something, you're watching something, you're texting someone about some gossipy news you've heard just seconds earlier, and just like that, I went into this moment thinking nothing was going to happen, and in a few seconds, I saw, and I wanted. The desires of the eyes. Watch your eyes. They're the highway of temptation. Third, the pride of life. This word alludes to an arrogance related to success. It's what the Greek word there means, a pride of life. Meaning um, that that there's there's an arrogance, there's a view of self that's high and mighty because of something that you've done or accomplished, or something that someone else celebrates in you, or the desire for that success. You know what I'm saying? It's the mentality of me, me. It's all about me. It's about your wealth. It's about your rank. It's about your position on the team. It's about your title at work. It's about your skin color. It's about the size of your social media presence that leads to a feeling of superiority. It's the pride of life. It's the fact that affluence is in and of itself a major obstacle to the gospel. It's why evangelism in a place like Bergen County is so hard All the time, and maybe I'm biased because we live here, but how do you tell people who seem to have it all in the world's eyes that they need Jesus? That everything they have maybe way more than you have, but you need Jesus. I mean, what if you found yourself in an elevator this week with LeBron James? Just won his fourth NBA title, fourth NBA MVP. What would you do if you tried to tell LeBron James that he is nothing without Jesus? How receptive do you think he will be? There's a reason why Jesus said, it is so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the reason is pride of life. So John explains what to love the world means. John just gave you Satan's three choice weapons to get you to fall. And indeed, these were the same three weapons that he used on Adam and Eve way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We'll have the verse on the screen. Look at this. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desires of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. And she took of its fruit, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the fall that Adam and Eve fell into, that fractured all of creation, of why we are all born with a sinful nature, with a natural bent towards the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. But in Luke chapter four. These three same weapons, because they're always the same weapons of Satan, were conquered by Christ when he went into the desert after his baptism for 40 days. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. First, the devil told Jesus to turn the stone into bread, desires of the flesh, and Jesus resisted. Second, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world, desire of the eyes, and Jesus resisted. And third, the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple and challenged him to throw himself down and prove that the angels would save him because of who he is, the pride of life. And Jesus resisted. Jesus reversed the curse that was put on the sons of Adam by laying his life down for those dead in sin, for you, for me lebron james and in doing so jesus defeated death itself and now for those who believe who repent of their sin and put their faith in jesus christ that same power that raised christ from the dead is now at work in you for in christ we are more than conquerors for in christ you can resist john says do not love the world Because the world cannot deliver. Only Christ can. And then, number three, third reason, the world is passing away. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the third reason, it's the final reason here, and for me personally, this one's the most compelling It's a reminder that we should dwell on regularly, if not daily. It would be a good idea to memorize this verse, 1 John 2 17. If you need help, ask Justin. And get your eyes on this verse as much as you can. Church, the world is passing away. Church, the world is passing away. It won't be forever. This world is a bad investment. It's a money pit with a low ROI. Imagine if someone came to you and said, Hey, I have this beautiful piece of property, beachfront property, and I will offer it to you at a third of the market price. The only thing is, in three years, this property will disappear to beach erosion and it will all be underwater. How crazy! Would you be, if knowing this and being told this, not only did you buy the property, but you invested everything you had to build a brand new custom home, all the furnishings, all the bells, all the whistles that one could only dream of at their beach home? And how crazy would you be if you boasted about it to your friends, put pictures up of it being built all along the way? And just trying to not know that you know that in short order, this whole thing will be gone. That'd be a bad investment. And this is what it's like for someone who sets their greatest affections, their highest hopes, their utmost love in this world. It's a bad investment to not love the world. Church, let us rather pour ourselves into that which will live on from everlasting to everlasting. Let us set our greatest affection on the Lord where the investment will not pass away but it will grow in value over time in glory. I want to close with an excerpt from a sermon by Charles Spurgeon in the 1850s. He said, The day is coming when this world shall be a paradise again. Jesus Christ, who came the first time to bleed and suffer, that he might wash the world from its iniquity, is coming a second time to reign and conquer, that he may clothe the earth with glory. And the day shall arrive when thou, O Spirit, shalt hear again the everlasting harmony. Once more, the bells of earth shall be attuned to the melodies of heaven. Once more shall the eternal chorus find that no singer is absent, but that the music is complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of your word. We thank you for the clarity of it, even while admitting it's not easy But Father, I pray that you would give us the grace, the strength, the courage to set our eyes not upon this place which we dwell temporarily, but upon the place where the eternal choir will be complete, to the place where you are, to who you are, to what you have done in our behalf, Lord, that you are the only one who will deliver. So, Father, give us again the courage to flee from the fleeting temptations of this world. And Father, let us encourage one another to do so as well, Lord, that that is one of the biggest values of a church, is to persevere together, to plow a counterculture together, to fix our eyes upon you together for your glory and our joy. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.